So the reading begins Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds um, from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I love literal titles. I think I've said this before, literal films, snakes on a plane. I wonder what that's about. Uh, things like that. But uh, this past week, I found a new TV program with a literal title. It's uh, called Hidden Britain by Drome by a Tony Robinson CBE, or Sir Tony, whatever he's called these days. I still call him Baldrick, but that's another generation. Hidden Britain by Drome. I mean, I wonder what that's going to uh, show. So this uh, last episode that I saw, there was one or two uh, hidden parts of London. Uh, just go over London Bridge, and you can see, if you've got a drome, you can go over it and then look down. They're extending the northern line. Um, up towards the Bank of England, up there doing untold damage. Probably it's a rue to steal all the gold bullion, but don't tell anyone. But stuff like that, you can see from the air things that you cannot see from the ground. We are now coming, beginning chapter 5, verse 1, in Matthew's wonderful story of the life of Jesus, Matthew's gospel, the good news. We've come to the part which is perhaps, well, it is one of the most famous parts of literature in the whole of human history. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 1. You can work out why that is. 
And in coming to the Sermon on the Mount, we continue at this rhythm that we've been on since the start of January of going quite quickly. We're going at quite a lick, quite a pace. And that's going to continue today as we take a drone's eye view of the Sermon of the Mount. We're going to go quickly. And then next week, I promise you, we're going to slow down and then return to uh, chapter 5, verse 13, and take each fancy word is a pericope, each paragraph we're going to take in turn, and we're going to go very, very slowly. But today we're in the drone. Today we're going to try and see with the wide-angled lens and any other metaphor I can think of to try and get the big picture of the Sermon on the Mount that's so important. Why? I'm going to try and do something ambitious of taking a bird's eye view of the whole thing because it's my conviction, if you want to understand, the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verses 3 to 12, you need a bird's eye view. They tell you, they describe who a Christian is before what a Christian should be doing. Because Jesus has already started, just in kind of low tone, to talk about the kingdom of God. Did you notice that in the reading? Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's talking about the kingdom. For Luke says the kingdom of God. Matthew says the kingdom of heaven. It's there again, verse 23. 4.23. Did you notice that again? As Eden read, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. It's there in chapter 5, verse 3 and 10. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This idea of the kingdom is vital if we want to understand uh, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, what is a kingdom, biblically speaking? A kingdom, when it comes to the Bible, or a kingdom when you come to think about uh, a new CEO in a company, a new headmaster or mistress at a school, um, a new royalty coming to take the throne from an ancestor, what do these type of people do when they come to the throne? What they start to do is to say, well, they reveal their manifesto. And the Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto of Jesus. It describes most clearly, most fully, anywhere in the whole of the New Testament, how a Christian should live in a countercultural way. It's absolutely radical. It's dynamite. It's TNT. And were we to grasp it, were we to feel the weight of it, were we to sense the fear of it, then it would crush us and challenge us at the same time if we see the one to whom it points. Every headmaster, mistress, every CEO, every king or queen, when they come to the throne or to the new uh, status that they hold, they want to say, these are the priorities that I'm going to bring to the company. I'm going to turn a uh, loss into a profit and this is how I'm going to do it. These are the priorities as we leave the EU, as we stay in the EU, as we don't know what we're doing towards the EU, this is what we're going to do. That's what a, a prime minister should be doing. It's policies, it's priorities, it's strategies. And all those things under the rule or leadership of a politician or a king in a kingdom helps us to some degree to understand the Sermon of the Mount. But there is a difference. A politician has a certain power for a limited period of time. They set out their manifesto. This is their public intention. I'm going, to, I'm going to do away with Social Security, says Obama, for example. I'm going to improve uh, health care. I'm going to improve schools. I'm going to improve the roads. They have aspirations. But the character that Matthew is so at pains to reveal is not a politician. 
chapter 1 says, this person, the center of the gospel, is a king. He's the king to whom David pointed. He's the king from David's line. He's not just the king from David's line. He's the head of a new people, chapter 4. He's a new Adam. He's the representative of a new nation. He's the new Israel. And now in chapter 5, verse 1, there's another Old Testament echo. He's not just King David's greatest son. He's not just the second Adam who leads a new people. He's not the representative of a new nation, the new Israel. He's also saying as he climbs up a mountainside, 5-1, and as he sits down, as he speaks the word from God, he's the new Moses. He's God's new teacher. And he speaks the truth of God. This kingdom that he will describe is not for a limited time. It's not party political agendas. It's not with limited power or limited reach. This king is king of a new kingdom that will be eternal. That uh, boundaries will know no end. That glory will know no telling. That uh, people struggle, even with a prophetic gift, to describe it. It will be so glorious and wonderful and majestic. It will be justice. There will be beauty. There will be the eradication, the removal of sin and tears. And this is the kingdom that we read about in the Beatitudes. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to feel the weight of it as we read it, as we get in our drones and go high. And having said that, I want you to feel the terror of it. And that's what what happens when you feel the weight of it. You feel the terror of the Sermon on the Mount. But then we'll find the hero of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's begin at the beginning. Let's feel the weight of it. I don't know the last time you felt something heavy. I love getting into uh, our bed. By the time it gets to November, we have a a two-layer duvet system. And uh, we've got it far too late in our marriage. But when we get both togs together, it feels heavy. And then if we're feeling particularly chilly, we get a few more blankets on top. It feels weighty and heavy. It feels great. It feels warm. Even if you're cold, it takes a bit of time. And then uh, you warm up. I don't know what it's like to be uh, feeling the weight of an avalanche. I hope I never will. Weight can be a good thing. Weight can be an overbearing thing. Feeling snow upon you. Feeling so much weight upon you that you can't breathe because you've got a brother or sister who's doing some horseplay and you can't get out. Perhaps you can remember that from child's childhood days. Let's feel the weight of the Sermon on the Mount. And in so doing, we're going to understand the Beatitudes more clearly. What do I mean? Let's get in our drones, 5.13. In 5.13, Jesus describes the Christian's relationship to the world. He says, Christians are to be like salt, they are to be like light. They are to be the salt of the earth and they are to be the light of the world. Salt is wonderful if you uh, want to kind of just put an extra bit of seasoning in your food. I love it on fish and chips. I don't know why anyone who owns a fish and chip shop says, do you want salt and vinegar? Who in their right mind would not want salt and vinegar on their fish and chips? But I love it because it's very unhealthy, and I love it because it brings out the flavor. Jesus, with this image of Christians are to be salt and light, they're to be like salt, not adding taste, but preservation. That's the image. Uh, They are to bring the gospel light into a dark world. Christians are to be different. When they see a society that is getting increasingly dark, they don't run away. They run towards the darkness with the light of the truth. When they see someone's life who is breaking down, when uh, there's no hope or no joy in their spirits, Christians don't run away because it will be too costly. They run towards the problem. Jesus says Christians are to be salt and light when it comes to the relationships we have with the world. 
But look at the second one, look at verse 21. We're just going through the paragraphs. Just listen if you haven't got it in front of you. How does it describe Christians' relationship with individuals? Beginning in verse 21. If you are my disciple, says Jesus, then every person you meet, you are to look at them straight in the eye. Don't look down upon them if they've got a different coloured skin, if their income is different, if their postcode is not shared by you. Every person is an equal in dignity. They are precious in God's sight. They share the image of God. And that means the church is to have no boundaries. Thirdly, look at the sexual integrity that should be in a Christian counterculture, verse 28. If you look at a woman lustfully, says Jesus, you've committed adultery. That's in the section beginning in verse 28. Jesus says something so uh, countercultural here. Don't give your life to someone unless they're willing to give their life to you, body and soul. You don't just look at someone if you lust after them. That's wrong. That's sin. Don't have sex unless you're married is an implication from that passage that we'll look at in a few weeks' time. Don't do something with your body that you don't have the integrity to do with your soul. People are far more valuable than just flesh and blood. You've got to have integrity of speech, not just sexually. That's in section verses 33 to 37. When you speak, whether it's a carefully crafted sentence that you've thought long about, a text that you've composed, you've deleted a few times, you make sure it's right, and then you click send. When you speak and when you send text messages, whether it's carefully crafted or an off-the-cuff remark, it's to have the same veracity and truthfulness that if you had your hand on a stack of Bibles, says Jesus. You're to be a person, if you're a Christian, living in this counter-cultural way that the kingdom of heaven on earth, you're to be sexually pure and spiritually pure. No off-handed comments. You're to speak a, be a person who speaks truthfully and carefully then it gets even more challenging. Look at sentence 43, if you've got the Bible in front of you. Turn the other cheek. Jesus now says, how do you respond to criticism? How do you respond to criticism when it comes your way? From a loved one, for someone who's not a loved one, from a boss, from an enemy. How do you respond to criticism when you hear it? Jesus says, you need to turn the other cheek. We'll think about that in a few weeks' time as well. If someone crosses you, if someone wrongs you, if someone says something to get, to pay you back for something that you've said, you're not to pay them back with a harsher word, with a stronger criticism, with a bit of a character defamation. Don't have anything to do with it. You're to turn the other cheek. You're to try and do all that you can to win them over with a kind word, with a tender spirit. How are we doing so far? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. How about your attitude and response to the poor? Jesus said, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom led by King Jesus with the priorities of the king, sees money as a resource to bless other people with. It's radical generosity. It assumes, Christians, that this is part of our DNA, that we want to give money away because we know it's been given to us by God to bless other people. We're to be radically generous. You give to people who are in need. It's a priority in your giving rather than something you do if there's anything left over at the end of the month. It's an attitude of the heart that Jesus gets even closer as the Sermon of the Mount goes on. How do you respond to the poor? 
be a generous person of time, of money, bigger than just money. Chapter 6, verse 19. Excuse me, chapter 6, verse 1. Your prayer life as well. Excuse me, 6, 5. Your prayer life. When it comes to prayer, when and how do you pray? What does Jesus mean? I think he means this. We pray at church. We always pray at church. That's what churchy people do. We pray at life groups. Well, we gather together, Christians, well, we better pray some. But what about you on your own? Jesus says, and when you pray, 6-5. This is the acid test of where you're at spiritually. Giving and prayer. When you pray, well, when do you pray? You pray on a Sunday, you pray on a Tuesday evening. But when there is spare time in the day, where do your thoughts go to without any help? I wonder what the kids are doing. I wonder if the boss will look over me again this year. One of the implications from the lips of the king is where your mind goes to when you have free time, that is your God. That's a very helpful indicator to where your thoughts go. And if you're a Christian, as part of this countercultural kingdom, 6.5 and following says, when you are alone, is there a heart disposition for you to pray and praise and give thanks to God and to pray for the kingdom of heaven to be established? Is there anywhere in our DNA, says Jesus? When you're on your own, where does your mind go to? And then it gets even closer to heart. Chapter 6, verse 19. Don't store up treasures on earth, but where your treasure is, there is your heart. I wish that sentence was not in the Bible, but it is. A storehouse is where you keep all your crops, right? And so a storehouse would be, in this analogy, where you keep your money, what you treasure. If the idea, says Jesus... This is me paraphrasing. If the idea from the lips of Jesus that it is absolutely abhorrent for you to give away 10% of your income, 15%, 20% of your income to the poor and the kingdom of heaven priorities, if that's abhorrent to you, then the words from Jesus will be very, very challenging to you. It's radical generosity. Not what's left at the end of the month. This comes out on the first of the month because it's a priority of your heart, of obedience and response and love and devotion to the king. 6.25, how do you describe your attitude towards circumstances? I'm not talking about your risk financially, your risk profile. What about uh, what you eat, drink, wear? Jesus goes for the heart now, if he hasn't been doing already, and says, you're to love and trust God so much, 6.25 and following, that you don't worry. You're not worried about tomorrow because you know that you have a Father in heaven who loves you. And if he cares for the sparrows, how much more will he care for you? If he clothes the uh, lilies of the field, how much more will he provide for your needs? I will not fear, because my heavenly Father loves me and knows my needs. And then chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, try this one on for size. How do you respond to people who you think are wrong? They're just plain wrong, because I'm right and they're wrong. How do you respond to people that have a different conviction or priority to you, different practices, different beliefs? How do you respond to people who are different to you? Jesus says, judge not or you will be judged. And talks about uh, going to the timber yard of specks and planks. It can't mean don't criticize because there's a lot of the Bible that is uh, justice and a critical eye. But it's talking about people who give out criticism 
without love, without humility, from a proud spirit and a lofty perch. We've been in the drone. That's the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to take another seven weeks to look at it far more closely and carefully. But how are you feeling? The Sermon on the Mount describes a life that sheds comfort. It's not after comfort. I want to follow the king, no matter what it costs. It's a, a life of sexual speech. Uh, sorry, sexual speech. Let's try that again. Sexual integrity and speech integrity. Describes a life that honors other people. It never looks down and loves and trusts God for the future. Do you feel the weight of the Sermon on the Mount? It's felt like an avalanche to me this week. When you hear it, when you sense it, it should feel like an avalanche to you. If you don't read the whole, you won't see the wood from the trees. And I won't make you feel any better with the second point. Having felt the weights, you should feel the terror of it. There's a lady here, Virginia Stem Owens. She is an English professor in America, and she thought it a good idea to say to her students, I want you to read this whole Sermon of the Mount and then tell me what you think of it. I think you're young enough to have not remembered 2,000 years of Judeo-Christianity, so you can come to it with a fresh sense, a fresh perspective, fresh eyes, and I think you'll feel, well, why don't you just go away and read it and write a paper uh, and tell me how you feel. This is what the student said. I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Here's another response. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery? I mean, come on. That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I've ever heard, says another student. Owen's got to the end of this piece of research that uh, this uh, activity turned into, and she said, the students who are not affected by a partial knowledge of the Bible are in a unique position to hear the terror and the weight of the Sermon of the Mount, and they really hated it. They were terrified by it. They were disgusted by it. A man from a, just a century ago or so, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, if you really read the Sermon on the Mount, you will cry out, God save me from the Sermon of the Mount. Take it away, for it reveals me. It exposes me. And until you see it, until you feel it, until you sense it, you will not feel the terror of the mount. You'll think you can do it. You'll think you can live this way. And friends, we can't. Maybe you had this response. It would be great to live in a society described by the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I wish my neighbor read this. I wish they were here this morning. I wish they treated me like this. I wish my work colleagues acted like this. Perhaps you think it would be great if other people acted like this. And yet at the same time, don't you know this is how we should be living? Don't you feel that? But we can't. It's so detailed. It's so laser-guided. It's so precise that no one can escape. We all know we fall short of it. But at the same time, I would love other people to treat me the way the Sermon of the Mount describes. So we're exposed and we're condemned. And so where do we go? We've got this avalanche on our chest of weight and expectation. And I feel pretty crushed. Where do we go with these ethical practices that begin in 5.13 after the Beatitudes that we turn our attention to now? We need to be changed. We don't just need to um, improve our character. We don't just need to improve 10%. We need a whole new heart and we need a whole new person. We've got to, we need to receive something. And that's where the Beatitudes fit in, is my conviction. Verses 1 
through to verse 12. Because they describe not how to live. They describe a person. The hero of heroes. Many people who've written on the Sermon on the Mount uh, in past generations say, actually, you've got in here a load of different people. Verse 3, you've got the poor in spirit, then you've got the mourning crowd, then you've got the meek crowd, and then you've got different people, the merciful. The Beatitudes are describing uh, about eight different groups of people, eight or nine Beatitudes, depending on how you count it. But I think more helpfully, it's more helpful to understand the Beatitudes are describing who a Christian is before who a Christian should be, how they should live. This defines something that they have received in their heart. And out of that changed condition, the indicative, it then describes how they should live, the imperative. This is how you should live in light of something that's happened. Be this. You need to be this person. You need to be this beatitude person before you can do this. Now, where does it start? Look at verse 3. To live in this way, to be a member of this kingdom, to live this kingdom of heaven life, verse 3 says you need to be a person who is poor in spirit. Christianity begins right here. It doesn't begin anywhere else. Lots of places in the Bible talk about uh, God's attitude towards the poor, God's generosity and provision for the poor. It describes the Christian uh, need to care for those who are poor. But here, verse 3 says, chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's a metaphor for describing a spiritual condition that every single person who is a Christian has, and everyone who's becoming a Christian is also having. This is where Christianity begins. Before someone becomes a Christian, this is going to seem absolutely absurd and nuts to them. Because this is how we reason. This is how I reasoned before I became a Christian. And let me take you to the bank. Imagine... We're in the bank, and we think that we've done some good things, some merits before God, and that's accrued us credit. But there are some bad things that we've done as well, and that's a, a demerit as well. But when it comes to income and outgoing, spiritually speaking, with our credit, when I compare myself with other people, actually, I'm in the black, I'm not in the red. I've done some bad things and done some things in the red, but I've got a lot of good things that outweigh the bad things that I've done. Only Christians and people who are becoming Christians can say, I'm utterly bankrupt. I've got nothing in the black and I've got a whole lot in the red. That's what verse 3 is saying. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you have come to a realization by the Spirit of God that you have nothing to offer to God. You are bankrupt. The first sign that you've become a Christian, the first sign that you are becoming a Christian is that you get to verse 3 and say, I have nothing to offer God. All the things that I did that were pretty good, actually, I did them for the wrong reason. I'm completely in the red. And if I don't receive something, I'm in deep spiritual trouble. Verse 4, these are together. So you are a person who mourns. That's another way of saying repentance. Verse 5, the third thing is you are, your characteristic is someone who is meek. Meek means someone without any power. Someone who's completely dependent. And so Matthew is painting this picture from the lips of Jesus. A Christian is someone who has become poor in spirit. They realize they're spiritually bankrupt. They realize that they are mourning over their sin, their rebelliousness. They've got nothing to offer to God. They are someone who is meek, verse 5. And then here's the key one, I think, to them all. Verse 6. A Christian is someone who hungers 
and thirsts after righteousness. Now, when was the last time you used the word righteousness? Okay, either you were watching Nemo, and there's that uh, uh, turtle that says, righteous, righteous, as he's going down that Australian stream. You don't use righteous in any positive sense anymore, unless you're describing someone else who's self-righteous. Yeah, that's the only place that I use it. They're self-righteous. I shouldn't be saying that anyway, because I've been convicted by the Sermon on the Mount, but you know what I mean. Here, it's saying, you want to know what righteousness is? Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Someone who's righteous is has living a life of love, who's living a, a life that is congruent, that is the same as God's high standard for living in sexual ethics, in speech, in giving, in prayer, in time, in kingdom priorities. That's the righteous life. And if you've become a Christian, this says that you, you hunger and thirst after it. Paul, the Apostle Paul got this. He gripped this in Philippians 3.7. He looks at his life. He looks at all his spiritual credentials. And do you remember what he says? That's anathema. That's nothing. I look at it and it's, it's rubbish. It's dung, he says. He says, I look at my past life and all the things that I thought were great, that I was serving God for the, the right reasons, but actually it was the wrong reasons. And it was rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's how I look at it now. I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But I want a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul gets this. He gets the Beatitudes and says, I need righteousness, but I can't earn it. I need to receive it. So look at verse 6. Here's the key. Blessed is those are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you're hungry and thirsty, who here? Put your hand up here if you think I'm really hungry, so I'm going to plant some potatoes. I'm going to cultivate the, the, the ground. I'm going to plant some spuds from Wilco's, cover it up, and I come back in three months. No one does that. Uh, who here says, uh, I'm a bit skint this month, so I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to get a better one. There'll be more money, so in a month's time I can buy myself a drink. No one does that. When you hunger and when you thirst for something, you're like Kimberly, you heard her this morning. She was the squawky one saying, feed me, Daddy. She wanted some uh, raisins, she wanted a drink, and she wanted it yesterday. Someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, they plead, they shout, they ask, they desire, they don't wait. I need food, I need a drink. I've got no resources to pay for it. Where's it going to come from? It's a new hunger, it's a new thirst. Because verse 6 says, if you do that, here's the promise, they will be filled. You will be filled by God's grace, by his provision, if you cry out to him and hunger and thirst, not for food or drink, but for spiritual righteousness. Uh, there's a man I came across this week called Ian Duguid. And he wrote a book on the Beatitudes, uh, 3, to 13, uh, 3 to 11, rather, of chapter 5. And he said, this is the hero of heroes. He says uh, eight times you've got the word blessed from verses 3 to verse 11, beginning the sentence. And he says, what does that mean? Many people look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary and say, for blessed, read happy. He's an Old Testament uh, scholar, professor, so he knows Hebrew and Ugaritic and Aramaic. And he says in the Old Testament, the same word is used in the Bible to describe one who is so favoured by God that they're envied by other people. They're so favoured by God that other people envy them. And so in the Old Testament, you've got people like David 
and people like Joshua. And they're envied because they're heroes. Because God's used them in such a way that they're heroic figures. That's the background to the Old Testament context of this word blessed. Someone that you aspire to. Someone you say, I wish I had what they want. You envy them. Someone we aspire to is described as a hero who, verse 3, is poor in spirit. This hero is mourning, verse 4. Verse 5, he's meek. And verse 6, he's hungering and thirsting. And the key things to grasping the truth, I think, of the Beatitudes is before it's describing us, the Beatitudes describe him. Before they describe you and me, they describe the hero of heroes. They describe Jesus, don't they? Why can you and I, as Christians, become spiritually as rich as kings? How is that possible? Because the hero of heroes became poor. Spiritually, financially, in every sense, Jesus became poor. Why can you and I be comforted in our mourning? Because Jesus mourned in the dark, the hero of heroes. Why will every Christian inherit the earth? Because the hero of heroes became meek and was led like a lamb before his shearers. Why will you and I inherit the earth? Because he was stripped of everything. They cast lots for his garments. Why can you and I be filled to the full? Because on the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. Why will you or I have received mercy from God? We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Because Jesus got no mercy from Pilate, from the crowd. He didn't even get mercy from his father. Why will we one day be able to see God? Verse 9. Because Jesus Christ on the cross was in the darkness. Where are you, Daddy? Why will we be able to have peace? Because the whole world, including his father, attacked Jesus when he hung on the cross for the sins of the world. We have to be like this. We have to be changed. We have to become Christians before there's any hope of us living like this. When you see Jesus being poor in spirit for you, poor before his father, deep humility of spirit, putting others before himself. When you see that, you don't look down at people anymore. You look at them in the eye because you know that you needed to receive mercy. And so who are you to look down on someone else who also needs to receive mercy? Until you see that the Beatitudes describe the hero of heroes, you'll never be able to live like the Sermon on the Mount. If you try, it's the avalanche experience. But if you see Jesus as the hero of heroes, if you see him as the blessed, the favoured one, Jesus Christ who became poor, meek, empty, then the gospel promise is verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for his righteousness, you could say, because they will be filled, they will receive it. Let's pray.